Welcome to episode two of the Complexity Premier Podcast from Coolabar Capital Investments. Today, we're going to talk about whether ESG filters can improve alpha and reduce beta, bank funding costs, the US Federal Reserve's new inflation averaging regime, the explosion in LICs, and whether the RBA could blow the housing bubble back up. As usual, we have myself, Ying Yan Cheng, a Portfolio Management Director at CCI, and my co-host, Christopher Joy, Portfolio Manager and Co-Chief Investment Officer of CCI. So Chris, why don't you give us a quick summary of how you're seeing markets in March? Yeah, thanks, Ying Yiz. Um, so in late 2018, we thought credit spreads were very, very wide, uh, and that presented extremely attractive uh, entry points buying opportunities. I don't think that was a particularly fashionable view. Uh, We certainly saw a lot of asset allocation away from credit on the view that uh, investment-grade corporate bonds would underperform in late 2018. However, since the middle of December, we have observed a quite striking compression in credit spreads and therefore uh, appreciation in the capital value of bonds. And that's really accelerated in 2019. So returns have been exceptionally strong over um, mid-December, January, February, and that has absolutely elongated into March. Um, We're observing an incredibly intense bid, particularly for Major Bank Senior. We'll talk about that, Yingers, uh, later, but individual dealers bidding for billions of dollars of worth of bonds, which is encouraging uh, and a positive signal. Uh, more specifically in March, uh, the Aussie floating rate note index is up 17 basis points in total return terms in the first 13 days. So it's performed very strongly. That, that's a significantly superior outcome to what we saw last year uh, in terms of a monthly run rate. We have seen middling performance from equities. So Aussie shares plus dividends are up only um, 0.36% uh, in the first part of March. The hybrid market has started to bounce back, as we expected. Um, the market struggled in February with uh, about $2.7 billion of new supply, care of the NAB and Macquarie deals. And we're starting to see a bit of mean reversion. Five-year spreads got out to... Um, about 380, 390 basis points for five-year major bank hybrids, and they have begun to compress. So the ASX hybrids index is up uh, about 23 basis points, or 0.23%, which isn't a bad outcome. Within that, major bank hybrids have been outperforming, uh, as we expected, because they underperformed significantly in February. The major bank hybrids are the biggest issues and the most liquid issues And what we find is that retail investors will often churn those liquid issues into new deals. So in the month of um, issuance, last month we had two big new issues, you often see that sector underperform. Another standout this month has been the Composite Bond Index. So fixed rate bonds are up 0.77% because of an ongoing long-term re-rating of interest rate expectations. And Yingers will talk uh, a lot more about that. But let's turn to ESG, Yingers. 
Yes, Chris. So ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social and Governance, is something that I'm personally quite passionate about and interested in. And it's something that I've been pushing the data scientists at CCI to look into. So a recent trend amongst retail and institutional investors has been the desire to construct portfolios that are compliant on an ESG basis. You know, this begs the question as to whether ESG factors have any relationship with future investment risk and return. Put differently, the question is, can ESG drive alpha and or reduce beta? Chris, maybe you can talk us through Kulabar's new paper on ESG. Yeah, sure, Yingers. Um, so we've just published a big paper on looking at the evidence for uh, ESG-related alpha and beta effects. As you described, can you use these ESG factors to predict future alpha and beta outcomes? Uh, the paper's available on our website, coolabarcapital.com. Uh, it's also on the SSRN academic research site. So we started off with a linear model, <clears throat> and that basically involved us um, over rolling periods on what is called an outer sample basis, where there's no uh, hindsight bias, um, basically regressing uh, the ESG variables for thousands of companies all around the world. Initially, we focused on the equity market. On those assets, future 6, 12, and 18-month returns. Uh, and we also controlled it for some market beaters, specifically an industry beta and a geographic beta. And what we found in the charts in our paper was that the coefficient um, that captures the relationship between the E, S, and G variables and future returns, the three variables were all individually insignificant. They couldn't explain future equity returns, but moreover, the coefficients weren't stable. They were moving around all over the shop. So at that point in time, we said, listen, you know, there's no real evidence of ESG alpha or beta effects. But it occurred to us that we should try and build a non-linear methodology. Um, and we focused on global markets. So we're looking at Australia, the US, Europe, and Japan, um, particularly in the equities domain. In the corporate bond market, we focused on <coughs> the US market because it's by far the biggest, but it also has an excellent um, daily data set called Trace. So what we did for um, the second methodology was we built what are known as quintile-based portfolios. So we divided up the stocks and bonds into five equally sized portfolios, um, and we ranked those portfolios based on their individual ESG scores, <clears throat> and then based on their total overall ESG scores. And when we did this, we did indeed uh, ascertain that there was a statistically significant relationship between ESG scores and uh, future alpha, positive or negative, negative alpha. And we observed um, monotonic relationships or relationships between the worst and best ESG portfolios that you would expect between their uh, risk and return or beta and alpha characteristics. This is on an out of sample basis uh, and we found this in Australia. So for Australian stocks we found this and for US equities we found this. Um, we couldn't really find 
any evidence in Europe or, or Japan. The evidence was particularly strong for the best and worst ranked quintiles uh, on their ESG scores. And within the scores themselves, the factor that seemed to have the highest explanatory power was the governance factor. Um, and that was prevalent, uh, or that manifest, in Australia and the US and to a certain extent in Europe. So then we turned to the corporate bond market. We did basically the same thing. And we initially found no significant effects at all. Using the five quintile based portfolios, controlling for market beaters, we used a version of the capital asset pricing model. So there was no relationship between ESG and alpha and corporate bonds that we could find. Um, what we did, however, document Ying is, um, was quite a significant uh, beta reduction effect. So basically the best ESG portfolios had significant lower volatility and lower risk. So we thought that was really interesting. We we're quite excited. Um, and then we dived deeper into the data and discovered and this is shown in a chart in the paper, that there's a very strong correlation between ESG rankings and credit ratings. So it's a positive relationship. So if you're in the best ESG portfolio, uh, you're gonna have the highest credit ratings and vice versa. And we also know that credit ratings are highly, highly correlated with beta and risk. You know, a AAA rated bond is gonna have much, much lower risk than a double B rated bond. And that's uh, well documented throughout the world. So we had to develop another technique um, to further refine the analysis. And what we wanted to do was isolate the effect of ESG controlling for credit ratings. So we built some more quintile based portfolios. This is over the period of almost a decade. <coughs> all out of sample. And so we sorted the bonds into these five portfolios based not only on their ESG scores, but also based um, on uh, quintiles that had similar credit ratings, maturities, and industry sectors. So we want to look at bonds that were otherwise homogenous in rating terms particularly, and whether there were any residual marginal ESG benefits apropos or with respect to uh, alpha and beta um, from a forecasting sense. And we did this. The bad news is um, that once again, there was no evidence of any alpha. In fact, the best social quintile, so if you took the best quintile based on the S within ESG, actually had statistically significant negative alpha, which was not a good thing. And the second kind of disappointing development was Yinger's that the beta benefits of ESG evaporated. They were actually captured by the credit ratings. So there was no beta benefits once we controlled for ratings. And indeed the best environment, so E and social or S quintiles actually had higher risk or higher beta, which is clearly undesirable. I mean, that's not what we wanna see. So we also noted that the best um, overall ESG quintiles had um, sort of undesirable risk attributes. So to wrap all this up uh, before we get into the rest of the podcast, and hopefully you guys have found this interesting, the paper's much more comprehensive. 
I hope I've done justice. Um, most of the credit goes to our data science team, but there's definitely value in studying ESG. We spend a lot of time on ESG de facto. We particularly, um, you know, the governance factor has always been a key one for us. And you can use ESG for long and short ideas, which I think is important. Um, you, you know, in our case, there are portfolios where we don't want to be ESG compliant because we want to be able to invest in assets where they're actually horrible on an ESG basis, but we think they're going to mean revert. They're going to remedy those problems and they're actually going to outperform in the future. I think there's also a case here is that the ESG data will improve over time with better measurement technology. That's certainly something um, we've had feedback on. But in summary, we definitely found statistically significant relationships between ESG factors um, and both uh, alpha and beta inequities in Australia and the US, not so much in the rest of the world. That may be because those two markets are more ESG sensitive. Um, it could also be because they've just had more you know, idiosyncratic ESNG um, events. Unfortunately, we couldn't find any um, relationship between ESG variables over the last circuit decade um, and alpha and beta in the bond market, the corporate bond market. And it, it does appear that the credit rating agencies do a very, very good job of actually embedding within their ratings most of the ESG uh, signals that you would otherwise capture through an ESG score. So I think this is an important um, domain that needs to be embedded into an investment process. We've certainly done a lot of heavy lifting from a quantitative perspective to better understand the relationships and we're now making that public and giving uh, our peers and our clients and any interested participants uh, the benefit of that research. Well, I think that's enough of the technical stuff, Yingers. Um, let's now turn our minds to bank funding costs and the ramifications for Aussie bonds. Yes, so we've seen bank funding costs falling fast after consistently climbing over the last year. The three-month bank bill swap rate, also known as BBSW, has dropped from 2.09% in December to 1.85% today, while the cost of the major banks five-year senior bonds has shrunk from 1.15% above BBSW to 0.95% above BBSW. That is, funding costs in wholesale bond markets have compressed about 0.47 percentage points, which means banks could start easing mortgage rates as APRA relaxes its macroprudential controls and competition for loans intensifies. And we think this process is a long way to run. The major bank's senior bonds were trading on much tighter credit spreads of just 0.72% above BBSW as recently as January 2018. So two key catalysts for this credit rally have been, one, the US Federal Reserve's decision to back away from its central case of two interest rate hikes in 2019 and secondly, the likelihood that APRA's new total loss absorbing capacity, otherwise known as TLAC policy, will disappear about one fifth of all major bank senior bonds and replace them with bail inable debt. 
A final influence has been the Fed canvassing the possibility of adopting a brand new monetary policy framework known as inflation averaging, which has massive implications for asset prices, particularly those that CCI trade. For many years, we've argued that central banks would become politicized and relax their commitments to price stability, and this seems to be finally playing out. So Chris, tell us about this. What does it mean for our investment team? Yeah, I think this is a very good point, Yingers, that you raise. Um, so the Fed currently targets officially a core inflation rate of 2% over its future forecast horizon. And it more or less ignores everything that's happened in the past. The concern Fed officials have is that consumer inflation expectations have been drifting down um, and they want to try and right that ship. An inflation averaging regime, which we've never seen before, would basically mean that if the Fed undershot its 2% target for a period of time, it would need to overshoot in future periods to deliver that average rate of 2%. Now, the thing is, average inflation, core you know, PCE inflation, in the US has been 1.6% <clears throat> since, since 2007. And that means that if the Fed moves to this new model, uh, it's going to have to run core inflation of between two and a quarter and two and a half percent for a potentially protracted period. That in turn means we could have rates that are substantially lower than otherwise would be expected given a standard Taylor rule or a monetary policy uh, reaction function. This is, I guess, uh, especially germane. Uh, in light of the fact that US wage inflation, which we have long forecast, and I think this has been a very contrarian view, would return back to pre-GFC levels, has indeed done exactly that. So we're now seeing wages in the US rising at a rate of 3.4%. The peak prior to the crisis in 2007 was 3.6%. And the Fed, with this... (coughs) inflation averaging regime can look through that evidence of rising wages and argue that it actually wants to maintain uh, above trend or higher than normal inflation for a period of time to restore inflation expectations back to their previous levels. So this is immensely important for asset pricing because uh, lower long-term discount rates will push up the value of assets today. And we've certainly seen this play out in the price action. It's one of the reasons I believe the Composite Bond Index has rallied so aggressively already, you know, 0.77% in the month to date. People have been pricing in not only the possibility of an RBA rate cut, uh, which we'll talk about later, Yingers, but they've also been starting to account for this, um, or the advent of this inflation averaging regime Uh, And it means that the search for yield dynamic is back in a big way. Uh, Another reason we're seeing a bid for spread assets that pay returns well above uh, cash rates. I think on that note, Yingers, um, it really brings us to the subject of listed investment companies. Yes, well, controversially, fund managers have figured out how to circumvent the vital future of financial advice otherwise known as FOFA consumer protection laws to pay what are quite 
gigantic sales commissions worth more than $150 million to brokers and advisors, despite FOFA being implemented to prevent precisely this practice. Parliament originally introduced the FOFA reforms to stop product manufacturers, mainly fund managers, paying conflicted sales commissions to advisors and or brokers or anyone with a financial services license providing advice to retail investors. FOFA does not apply to wholesale as opposed to retail investors, nor to any normal business issuing shares, senior bonds, subordinated bonds or hybrids, or otherwise known as preferred equity, to raise money to fund their operations. In these cases, conflicted commissions are permitted. When these laws were introduced in 2012, they applied to all investment entities, including listed and unlisted funds and investment companies. In 2014, however, sustained industry lobbying convinced politicians to exempt listed investment companies, also known as LICs and trusts, LITs, from FOFA's all-important reach. Fund managers are now simply shifting their capital raising efforts onto the ASX to allow them to sidestep FOFA completely. So Chris, you wrote about this in the AFR recently. What are your thoughts precisely? Yeah, so Yingers, as you noted, um, I did write about this and I think it's very, very interesting. I think this is an extremely big issue in financial services in Australia because, you know, FOFA, the Future of Financial Advice Laws, are one of the most important reforms we've ever had. And they've helped rebuild an unconflicted, independent, um, and I think in many quarters admired financial advice industry. In the past, it was the relationship between product manufacturers paying commissions to advisors to incent them to flog those products against the best interests of their customers that created a raft of mis-selling crises that have been very well documented and raised again, unfortunately, uh, by the Royal Commission. So FOFA is a critical, critical reform. And it's quite amazing that listed funds were granted an exemption. The exemption, as you mentioned, came in in 2014 and surprise, surprise, we've seen like an incredible tsunami of LICs and LITs. You know, six to seven billion dollars already raised through paying brokers and advisors more than 150 million dollars in sales commissions. You know, sales commissions of typically two to three percent of every dollar raised. That's massive. You know, mortgage brokers earn um, in upfronts and trails about 1.2%. Now, normally fund managers aren't allowed to pay any commissions. When you're raising money through normal FOFA compliant channels, it takes a long time um, and that capital is sourced on its merits. You know, when it's in the best interest of the customer and the product stands on its own two feet um, in terms of its merits. And because you can pay these huge commissions, what you can do is raise this money very, very quickly. So we've seen, you know, an example last year was L1, you know, uh, a global equity long short hedge fund, a very risky equity hedge fund that wouldn't normally be sold uh, day to day 
to retail punters, um, a product that's leveraged up to three times. And they raise $1.35 billion from mums and dads um, in a month or so. Uh, that sort of money would normally take a manager years, you know, five or 10 years, if ever, to raise in the absence of those commissions. And unfortunately, uh, that product fell about 36% in value within, uh, I think it was six to nine months, inflicting losses on paper as high as $500 million. And since the L1 debacle, we haven't actually seen many or any uh, equity LICs, but the spruikers have shifted to other products. And right now we have a proliferation of uh, fixed income and debt LICs. So we've had a US junk bond LIC slash LIT. We've had um, an Australian high yield uh, LIT. We've had a subordinated residential mortgage backed security uh, LIC or LIT. Uh, we've got a private loan uh, LIT in the market right now. Uh, there is talk of a bunch of other junk bond or high yield or sub-investment grade LICs or LITs that are about to come to market. My guess is these uh, some of these folks, and I should say there are a lot of very good fund managers um, who have been very successful independently of the need to pay humongous conflicted sales commissions. Uh, a lot of these guys, in fact probably most of them are outstanding managers and doubtless have an important role to play in many uh, portfolios. Um, but once again, uh, it's highly unlikely that many of these uh, products would be raising money uh, in the manner they are, as quickly as they are, and in the volume that they, that, that they are, uh, without these uh, 2 to 3% commissions. And the other concern, I guess, is that the retail punters who are being convinced to pour billions of dollars into these products in very short order. Don't really understand what they're getting into, um, as was you know, possibly the case with our one. And I'm not saying there's been any mis-selling, because I don't know of any mis-selling, just to be clear. So we're not aware of any evidence of mis-selling, but whenever you get conflicted sales commissions, that is absolutely a recipe for mis-selling. Um, and I think that the proliferation, the spate of debt LICs are trying to leverage off potentially the concern that um, ASIC might close the loophole. Um, and also, I think uh, they're trying to capitalize on the fact that the RP is proposing to um, prevent SMSFs from banking cash refunds on franking out credits from the ATO in the event that the SMSF is a low or no tax part. Now, the reality is the labor franking policy only affects less than 10% of all investors. I mean, it's a small part of the market and um, the biggest constituency would clearly be folks who have bought equities, uh, high-yielding equities to support income. And I actually think um, it would be a good thing if people who are using shares as a fixed income surrogate would diversify into fixed income, whether that be private debt, whether that be junk, whether that be hybrids, uh, subordinate bonds, senior bonds. All those assets have a role to play. Uh, and again, there are very, very good managers out there. You know, Metrics has done uh, a great job pioneering 
the direct line space for Insta and retail. The key thing is you need to understand what you're buying. Um, and that, that would be my concern. So I think retail investors need to invest in the due diligence. They need to understand that private debt is very different to public debt. Um, and you need to consider whether the assets are rated by credit rating agencies or not. If they're not rated, what the likely default risk is, uh, what the terms and conditions are of these loans. You need to understand that a lot of the time these loans have zero liquidity. Uh, you need to understand that there will be the appearance of capital stability um, and very low volatility, but that's because there's no liquidity and you can't mark them to market. And I really think it does require expert um, portfolio management from groups like Metrics. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where this kind of LIC um, uh, drama goes, but but it is certainly you know worrying for us. Uh, we've definitely been offer, offered the opportunity um, to uh, run an LIC slash LIT, but at this point, you know, we haven't exercised that option. A final point I just quickly make on LICs is <clears throat> they're closed funds, and what that means is you can't ordinarily um, enter and exit at NTA, the Net Tangible Assets, or NAV. Um, in contrast to a normal managed fund, where when you invest, they create new units, and when you exit, they redeem units, and you always enter and exit at NAV or NTA. Um, the problem with LICs in the past has been precisely that, that you can be forced to exit. If everyone wants to exit and the assets are liquid, you're gonna be exiting at miles below uh, NTA and NAV. That's a, that's a real risk. And the LIC discount uh, puzzle, uh, in the case of liquid assets, is very well documented in the global academic research literature. Um, it's even more likely with illiquid assets. So that's something to be mindful of um, if you're going to plow into one of these products. So on the topic of retail and households, the RBA just released some really new research on the impact of interest rates on house prices. And back in 2013, you actually warned the RBA in your AFR column that their easy monetary policy would blow a huge housing bubble, which we have subsequently seen. CCI have long argued that the RBA made a major forecasting error when it slashed its target cash rate from 4.75% to 1.5% and repeatedly assured the public that this would not fuel double-digit house price growth nor a sharp re-leveraging of household debt. But which is precisely what happened. So while the RBA doesn't target house prices with its monetary policy settings, it is obliged not to amplify financial stability risks. And it is this part of its official mandate that it failed miserably between 2013 and 2017. So Chris, do you want to talk us through the new RBA research that's causing the RBA's brosses some problems? Sure, Ying is. Yeah, so... One of the RBA's operating maxims is that it basically never admits it's wrong um, for fear of undermining its credibility. So instead of saying, you know, we got 2013 to 2017 wrong in terms of we didn't expect the huge run up in house prices and the massive re-leveraging of household debt uh, unfortunately, the RBA governors, the last two governors, have been running around telling the public and politicians porkies. Now, according to this view of the world, 
the explosion in Aussie house prices, the 50% increase in uh, prices between 2012 and 2017 had nothing to do with rates. It was all because there was inert supply uh, and we had strong population growth. One problem with this analysis is that we've actually been experiencing the biggest housing construction boom on record. So the supply side has been very elastic. Um, the other problem is that these two very bold and brave RBA economists and none other than welcome to the stage Trent Saunders and Peter Tulip. Um, <clears throat> I've actually given, uh, I think it is Dr. Tulip, a bit of a hard time in past columns um, when he had tried to rationalise uh, the dramatic uh, appreciation in Aussie prices as being uh, in line with fair values based on uh, big reductions in long-term discount rates, and he would be right if those um, big reductions in discount rates, rates were to persist in perpetuity. But um, anyway, these two RBA economists have published this paper, which quite dramatically contradicts what Governor Phil Lowe has been recently saying. And this is tremendously embarrassing because all the media has covered it. And in this work, they conclude... Um, after doing a hell of a lot of very, very impressive quantitative research, that, quote, the reduction in real interest rates affected by the RBA accounts for most of the subsequent boom in dwelling prices since 2011. So most of the boom was actually the RBA's doing, contrary to what um, governors Stevens and Lowe have told the public and politicians. Now, looking at the data between 87 and 1987 and 2018, the authors find that a 1% point permanent reduction in real interest rates translates into a 17% increase in house prices. Um, however, as interest rates approach zero, the sensitivity of housing to rate changes increases sharply and based on current home ownership costs uh, Saunders and Tulip find that today if the RBA were to cut the cash rate by 1% um, Aussie house prices would increase by a staggering 28% that is assuming the cash rate cut uh, is permanent, so that people think that it's here to stay. Before the RBA ignited the uh, the big post-2012 boom, the long-term risk-free rate in Australia was around 4%. This is the 10-year government bond yield. Today, it is less than 2%. And based on this research, what the RBA has done should have increased house prices by 40% post-2011 before inflation. And coincidentally, that's exactly what we got. So pretty damning evidence in that regard. Now, this is um, extremely important for current markets because economists and traders have been 
feverishly speculating that the RBA will once again succumb to relevance deprivation syndrome. That the RBA will get the yips from its long-held position that the next move in rates is up. And there is a consensus that the RBA will shortly debase the price of money. Ironically, as a result of declining house prices and the depressing effect of such on economic growth um, via reduced consumption. So the retail sales data has been very weak and everyone's getting very, very exercised exercised about this. Notwithstanding the big uh, fly in the ointment, which is that fact that the jobless rate, which is actually the most powerful explanatory variable for future inflation in uh, the RBA's inflation forecasting models, is sitting at its full employment level of 5.0%. The RBA is mandated to maintain full employment and we have full employment. So that would not seem to necessitate further rate cuts. A A sensible central bank might be concerned that the two standard rate cuts that that bank would normally affect. So the minimum move is normally to 25 basis point rate reductions. Um, would, based on this latest research, simply be capitalized immediately into house prices, um, resulting in Aussie bricks and mortar rising 14%, crucially more than offsetting the very valuable peak to trough losses in house prices of circa 9 to 10%, that we have recorded in the current correction. And you know, to our minds, the sad thing is that the Aussie housing downturn is actually the best thing that has happened to the Aussie economy in years because it's cauterizing our biggest financial stability risk. Surely the RBA, and I don't think they will do this, but surely the RBA, if they were somewhat more rational, would be better served by tolerating a period of subpar economic growth and allowing this housing market to clear, allowing these imp- balances to disappear. Thanks, Chris. And thank you for listening to the Complexity Premier podcast from Coolabar Capital Investments. Please have a listen to the disclaimer and feel free to give us a five-star rating on iTunes. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.